how to say no. Stand your ground, assert yourself, and make yourself be seen without guilt or awkwardness. Written by Patrick King, narrated by Russell Newton. Imagine a couple is planning their wedding. Because both come from big, close families, everyone gets involved in the plans, and soon every parent, aunt, uncle, cousin, and distant relative is weighing in with their opinion on how things should be done. The engaged couple, wanting to be nice and show how appreciative they are for all the help they're getting, accept more and more interference, saying yes to every new person added to the guest list despite their reservations. They hold their tongues when people ignore their wishes or steer things in a different direction. You probably already know how this story ends. Soon, the wedding doesn't remotely resemble what the couple originally wanted, and stress is at a fever pitch. Eventually, one, or both of them, loses their temper and puts their foot down. The families on both sides are hurt and confused. Jeez, no need to be rude. If you didn't like it, why didn't you just say so? If you're reading this book, chances are you've had a similar experience in your own life and would like to know how to avoid reaching this kind of breaking point again. Good communication, empathy, and knowing how to compromise are wonderful skills to have, but in this book, we'll be talking about a skill that is relatively undeveloped in some of us, the art of saying no. Having firm and healthy boundaries that you are comfortable asserting is a non-negotiable part of good mental health and self-esteem. But learning to say no is about so much more than simply putting your foot down with pushy family members to save some drama. The benefits of speaking up to defend your own boundaries and limits go far beyond this. Why saying no is so essential. Saying no is about respect. Respect for ourselves and for others. When we say no, we assert our own boundaries. And this communicates to both ourselves and to others that we have value. And also that we have values, i.e., we have principles, goals, and limits that we care about protecting. Saying no is a conscious, deliberate act. It empowers you because in saying, this is not what I want, you're also essentially saying what you do want and, in so doing, shape your own life. If you can say no, you take back your own power and agency and correctly balance other people's desires, needs, and demands with your own. If you can say no from a healthy and conscious state of mind, then you know how to set your own intention and direct your life in the direction you want it to go, according to what's important to you. And the more you do this, the more confident you feel in your dreams and goals and in your right to expect a life of your own, to do with it what you want. However, if you never say no, you end up deferring to other people's ideas of who you are, what your life should look like, and what you should do. You put their needs, expectations, and comfort before your own. Suddenly, you're bending over backward to make it easier for them to achieve their desires, all the while ignoring or dismissing your own. The end result is that your desires and opinions seem less important, your dreams go unfulfilled, your limits disrespected, and, in short, your life takes on a shape that makes it convenient for others rather than being something that you designed for yourself. We don't only say no when things impinge on our values, though. 
No is a practical word. It helps us cut down on stress and respect our own limitations. We can't do everything. Even if there's a bunch of things you genuinely want to say yes to, it takes maturity to home in on your priorities and say no when you feel overwhelmed or have your mental and emotional resources stretched. Though we might not like it, time and energy are always limited quantities. We need to budget them, just as we budget our limited finances. When you say no firmly and with confidence, people end up putting more value on your yes. Rather than seeming like a doormat who will do anything, people come to respect your time and know that you will respect theirs by being honest up front about what you can and can't do for them. When you value yourself, you communicate this to others and you actually end up avoiding confusion, awkwardness, overwhelm, or guilt from saying yes when you shouldn't. You only boost your own sense of worth and bring more authenticity to your relationships. You don't take things personally and don't allow guilt to control your life. Finally, one great meaning of mastering no is that you give yourself so much more time and energy to pursue what you really care about, i.e., all those things you can say a hearty and resounding yes to. Are you a person who is constantly overcommitting? Many of us are trained to think of yes as such a positive, helpful, and healthy word. But this word can be surprisingly destructive. Maybe your job demands too much of you, and you work unpaid overtime or answer emails late at night when you should be relaxing. Maybe you end up doing all the chores or agreeing to all the organizing for your social group or PTA. Maybe you have a pushy family or a partner who you feel makes constant demands that you can't ignore. Between work commitments, children, family, studies, life admin, and relationships, most of us have a lot of demands, not just on our time, but on our money, our emotions, and even our physical energy. Here's a fact about life. There will always be more to do than there is time to realistically do it. So, knowing this, we can either adjust ourselves to respect these natural limitations, or we can attempt in vain to do it all and fail anyway. Many people who chronically say yes to everything and overcommit believe they're doing so because it leads to a rich, full life, or it makes other people happy, or it solves problems, and so on. The truth, however, is that overcommitting is bad for everyone involved. The irony is that in trying to do too much, we often do barely anything at all. When we bend over backward to win approval, we seem to get it the least. And when we violate our own boundaries to make others happy, they seem the least happy of all. Overcommitting often comes with a heightened need for approval. You may possess some of the personality traits associated with overcommitting, including being an ambitious perfectionist and liking to be in control. But the downside is obvious. No matter how much we might pretend we're superhuman, at some point our energy does run out, leaving us exhausted or even with a few health complaints. It's a bitter irony. In trying to be perfect, we're often forcefully confronted with our own limitations or even with outright failure when we push ourselves too far. In trying to impress others, we take on so much that we can't help but disappoint them or let them down 
when we can't juggle as much as we thought we could. And when we chase that feeling of being omnipotent and able to take on anything, we can quickly find ourselves feeling sick and burnt out, our body almost forcing us to stop and take a break. Chronic overcommitting, i.e. failing to say no when we should, can be linked with disturbed sleep, increased risk of heart disease and diabetes, and mood disorders like anxiety or depression. Your body responds to the pressure by releasing stress hormones like cortisol into your system. While this boost ordinarily helps you through challenging or stressful times, when the situation goes on too long, these hormones can start to cause inflammation in your body, which invites all kinds of diseases, not to mention weakening your immune system and defense against stress in the future. When we never say no, we never stop, we never rest, we never give our hearts, bodies, and minds the opportunity to heal and repair. And when anything is run continuously with no time to recuperate, it incurs wear and tear and eventually breaks down. You may find your appetite is disturbed, as well as your libido. And if you're a woman, your hormonal cycles and fertility will be negatively impacted. Others may experience headaches, allergies, mysterious aches and pains, fatigue, digestive trouble, or even bad habits like overeating and substance abuse. Burnout is nothing more than your body reaching the end of its physical, emotional, and mental resources. You may have been producing cortisol at such high volumes for so long that your body basically can't do it anymore. The answer is not to take on more or to add another item to to The answer is not to take on more or to add another item to your to-do list called fix burnout. Rather, the challenge is to find ways to pull back, to build ourselves back up again, and to find balance. And there's one magical word that helps us do that. No. But if this word is so great, why do we seldom use it? Why We Struggle to Say No Granted, this would be a very short book if all it took to be better at saying no was simply being told, you should say no more. Most of us know full well that intellectually understanding the value of saying no and actually saying no are two quite different things. This is why it's so important to dig deep into this issue and get a genuine grasp on why we are currently finding it difficult to put down healthy boundaries and moderate the demands of our time, energy, and emotions. Think about the last time you didn't say no when you could have, or should have. Why didn't you say no? Maybe you felt guilty. But guilty about what? Where did that guilt come from, and what's it all about? This is what we'll be exploring in this chapter. There are many different explanations for why we find it hard to put our foot down. That's why it's important to understand your unique reasons before considering any potential solutions, since the success of any solution will depend on how appropriate it is for the problem we actually have. Reason 1. You want people to like you. Let's cut to the chase. Many of us say yes when we mean no because we want to appear to be a particular kind of person. We say yes to extra work because we want to appear to be dedicated and committed to our jobs. We say yes to helping out at the food bank, 
because we want to appear to be selfless and community-minded. We even say yes to going on that second date because we want to appear easygoing and friendly. Nobody likes a wet blanket who lets the team down, right? So you say yes when you don't really want to. Maybe there's a part of you that wants to appear busy and in demand. Maybe you're a little flattered that your attention and energy is required, and you like being a person who is sought out in that way. Of course, it's also a perk when you get to do things your way rather than letting someone else take responsibility for it. There's the control again. If we dig deeper, though, this reason comes down to nothing more than this. We want others to like us. We imagine the person we want to be and behave as we think they would. Friendly, accommodating, helpful, hardworking. We feel that people will respect and like us more if we agree to their demands and help them. Humans are social creatures, and this is a natural impulse. But in those who overcommit, it can get out of hand. Reason 2. You're afraid that you'll miss out on something if you say no. Sometimes we say yes because we want to be the kind of well-liked people we believe say yes. Sometimes we just say yes because we're afraid of what will happen if we don't. Our boss might offer us a stressful opportunity that might not come around again if we say no now. Maybe we worry that saying no will affect our prospects or make us less in demand when clients perceive us as unreliable or unwilling to help. This applies to personal relationships, too. How many people have committed to one another simply because they felt that unless they demonstrated some willingness, they might lose their partner or jeopardize the relationship? Friends, family, or romantic partners may communicate an unspoken rule to us if you say no, all hell will break loose, so we bend ourselves out of shape to avoid risking losing them or making them feel bad. Finally, we can also find ourselves saying yes, not because we sincerely mean it, but because we have that notorious FOMO, fear of missing out. We imagine everyone else is out there living life to the fullest, and unless we say yes— we're wasting our chances for happiness. It's an enormous pressure when you think about it. Reason 3. You genuinely care. Parents can often exhaust themselves saying yes all the time because they genuinely care about their kids and want what's best for them. They put their needs second, if they consider them at all, and do whatever it takes to make their kids happy. Consider someone who quits their job to become a full-time carer for a sick spouse or agrees to wake up in the middle of the night to go help out at an emergency at the animal shelter. Of course, there's nothing wrong with wanting to help, to do good in the world, to care for those we love, or to try to make a positive difference to others. It's a wonderful thing to see suffering in the world and work to reduce it. If we imagine that our saying no would hurt someone we love, it's natural to say yes to prevent it. This reason can be the hardest of all because it asks us to do the difficult work of weighing up our own needs against those of others. We'll consider this in detail later on, but being a martyr or setting yourself on fire to keep others warm is not a sustainable life strategy. 
Reason four, you feel you have to care. Finally, let's look at what might be the most common reason behind overcommitting, believing that it's simply not nice to say no. This is subtly different from the other reasons. We might agree to something because we genuinely want to do it, or because we want the effect that it will create, i.e., us being liked. But many of us are saying yes simply because we feel we should. What's behind this should? Our beliefs, values, and principles inform everything we do, and they come not only from within us, but from our family experiences and our cultural programming. We may have an unexamined narrative that says, for example, when someone offers you food, you say yes, no matter what. This is not kindness exactly, but rather the awareness of obligation, convention, and politeness. There's a little of reason, too, mixed in here. We may fear that if we don't say yes, we'll have to endure the negative consequences of feeling like bad people, i.e. guilt. This guilt shows a tension between our sincerely held desires and limits and their mismatch with what we think we're supposed to feel and do. When we feel guilty, we can assume that somewhere along the line, we have violated a value or principle, whether it's one of our own or one that's been imposed on us from the outside. We may cringe in guilt because we anticipate a payback, which could be self-judgment or the judgment of others. In fact, people who have become firmly embedded in the habit of saying yes when they mean no may simply do it automatically after a time and lose touch entirely with what they really think and feel. These are the people who don't even think about saying no. It doesn't occur to them. Such a person may feel unhappy without quite understanding why, or only discover the real source of the tension much later. As you can see, there are lots of answers to the question of why we find it so hard to say no, but in a way, they can all be explained by one overarching theme, codependency. All of the above reasons come down to our particular negotiations with people at the boundary of self and other. In a world shared with others, there's always a trade-off between our personal needs and limitations and those of others. Where exactly we draw that line comes down to us. Some people are genuinely selfish, taking more than they give and focusing on their needs at the expense of others. People-pleasers have the opposite imbalance. They give more than they take and focus on others' needs at the expense of their own. If you're a people-pleaser, you may have recognized all of the above four reasons in your own life. You may have trouble not only saying no, but in asking for help, stating your needs, or admitting that you're having trouble. You may hate confrontation and do what you can to make others happy. You might often end up doing things yourself, just because it's easier that way, and you might not want to risk losing your relationships with people who can sometimes be a little too comfortable with your role as their devoted caregiver. You don't want to offend or disappoint or be judged, so you say yes before you even think about what you're being asked, maybe feeling resentful later on. Sometimes you feel like people have a hold on you, you get a self-esteem boost from being perceived as amiable and helpful, but get deeply anxious about saying no, 
preferring just to say yes and deal with the consequences yourself. The codependency element comes in when you need people to approve of you. In other words, you need to be needed. You may sacrifice yourself, but feel like people aren't appreciative enough, and then unconsciously hold this against other people, reassured that they can't abandon you since you've helped them so much and have been so useful. The end result of always saying yes is surprisingly negative. You may feel trapped, taken advantage of, worthless, torn, overburdened, and annoyed with yourself for being a doormat. You might have been taught to be considerate and kind and helpful, and yet somehow you end up feeling profoundly uncared for. The Psychological Root of Never Saying No Codependency Let's take a closer look at the codependency dynamic. Originally a concept defined in psychology when talking about the relationships that form around someone with an addiction, codependency is now seen as a web of psychological patterns where one person takes too little responsibility for problems while another correspondingly takes too much. Codependency goes beyond being kind and helpful. When we're codependent, we get enmeshed in other people's needs, feeling that we're personally responsible for their emotions and that it is solely our job to solve their problems and make them happy. While compassionate help is one thing, codependency can turn into enabling and playing the rescuer to people, ironically disempowering them and making it likely that they depend on you more with time rather than less. Without proper boundaries and the ability to say no, you build a relationship on obligation, entitlement, dependency, and distorted duties. Codependency feels bad for both parties, but if you're reading this, it's likely you are the overcommitted and overresponsible part of the dynamic. Codependency can be difficult to see in ourselves because we like to think that we're acting rationally or doing what's best for the other person. We might not have a clear and honest understanding of our motivations, but if you are constantly feeling uncomfortable with demands and obligations on you, if you feel literally unable to say no, if there is anxiety or blurred boundaries around your relationships, or if you often feel taken for granted, then codependency might be an issue for you. We will look at exactly how to draw better boundaries later on in this book, but for now, it's worth noting the fundamental core belief that lies at the root of codependency. This core belief is, I can take the emotions of another person and change them. Or, put another way, I'm responsible for another person's emotions. We can compare this to a healthier form of compassion, which says, I can always love, empathize with, and support others, but I can't live their lives for them. When we have healthy boundaries, we know which feelings belong to us and which belong to others. We know that we can control our own actions, but cannot control others. We know that we're responsible for ourselves and that others are their own responsibility. When we show codependence, however, we get tangled up with other people in ways that are unhealthy for both. The classic example is a wife whose husband drinks. Imagine he gets very drunk then lashes out, breaks things, and threatens people, including her. When he sobers up, 
He pretends it never happened, or blames her, or complains that she should have done more to stop him. One day, he is arrested on drunk and disorderly charges, and he asks her to bail him out of jail with all of her savings. She can't say no. Who else will rescue him? She makes excuses for his bad behavior, even unconsciously enjoying the fact that she is his only defender and helper. He takes no responsibility for his behavior while she takes all of it, promising him on the drive home that she'll try harder to bring stress down at home so he isn't tempted to drink. A few days later, when he asks her to buy a few bottles of wine, she can't say no either. The cycle starts again. She tells others that he makes her life miserable, but the truth is that she never considers leaving him and, in an unhealthy way, enjoys being the virtuous rescuer. Doesn't she like feeling so needed? Now, this is an extreme example, but we've all been guilty now and then of the same dynamic. We play the long-suffering martyr or take on emotions or worries that aren't strictly our responsibility. The trouble with codependency is that it just doesn't work. We can't save others from the consequences of their actions. We can't make someone feel a certain way. And we can't live anyone's life for them. There are many reasons we may fall into this kind of relationship pattern. The big one? Fear. Fear of what? Of rejection, disapproval, or anger. Fear of losing control and something terrible happening. We might fear the loss of a relationship, criticism from others, or simply feel unwilling to face up to an uncomfortable or unpleasant truth. Saying yes all the time comes to act like a protective shield, keeping our insecurities at bay and keeping us in control. It's more likely you'll need this external approval when your inner self-concept is shaky. You may need to feel useful helpful, and needed to feel worthwhile as a person, or feel that if you don't bend over backward, you'll lose what's important to you. So rather than reaching out to loved ones in a spirit of compassion and sincere affection, we do so from a place of guilt, shame, and fear. A father might never have the courage to set financial limits with his grown children because he's afraid that if he does, he'll lose their love. This is because deep down, he doesn't feel confident and secure in himself beyond his ability to provide money. A woman may constantly agree to cook for family holidays despite the stress because she feels judged by her husband's family, who preferred his ex-wife. She feels pressured to say yes to whatever they demand so she won't be negatively compared to the ex. Another big driver of codependent behavior is a sense of misplaced trust. What this means is that we mistakenly assign others the task of giving our lives fulfillment, purpose, and value, while that is, in fact, our job. Of course, human beings will always have a degree of attachment and dependency on other human beings, but this is normal and healthy. But when we allow other people's actions, feelings, and thoughts to define us, we're disempowered. It's good to trust and submit to others, within reason, but when we're codependent, we almost trust too much, relying on others to fill gaps we find in ourselves. 
Some codependent relationships have a transactional quality, i.e., if you take care of me this way, I'll take care of you in that way, and we'll be together forever, because we both can't live without the other. Consider a lovesick teenager who makes their life's happiness completely dependent on the object of their affection returning their love. It's as though nothing else matters. They will only consider themselves worthwhile if the other person approves of them. This is a person who believes their happiness lies outside of them. They can never be happy unless someone else approves of them, gives them attention, or needs them. Before we dismiss the lovesick teenager, though, consider how this same dynamic exists in workplaces all over the world. How many people wrap their entire identity up with fame, recognition of their talents, work achievements, or praise from a higher up? Finally, one very obvious instigator of codependent behavior is simply habit. Were you raised in a home where your parents modeled this kind of relationship? Maybe your family taught you early on an unhealthy set of rules to follow when it comes to relationships, or programmed you with a less-than-helpful set of definitions for love, obligation, help, and responsibility. Codependent behaviors are often seen in women— who are socialized to take on the ultra-nurturer role or dismiss their own needs in favor of serving the needs of others. Codependency is a learned behavior. What has your family and culture taught you? For example, did you have a father who regularly said things like, look what you made me do, or a mother who asked you a yes-no question when you both knew that she would only ever accept a yes? With awareness, we can reclaim healthy responsibility for ourselves while gently learning to say no to things that are not our rightful responsibility. And it's worth it. Codependency is incredibly harmful for us. Codependency breaks down relationships and people. It doesn't build them up. It creates resentment. People don't appreciate you or respond in kind, and you feel taken for granted. Anger and entitlement simmer inside you when, realistically, you chose to give too much. Maybe you give even more in the hopes that you'll finally be noticed and praised, but resentment can continue to build and explode later or lead you to act in passive-aggressive or complaining ways. It creates physical and emotional issues. We've already seen the heavy health cost that comes with chronic stress and overcommitting. Depression and anxiety are almost guaranteed, meaning you're working very hard and going out of your way to make yourself unhappy. It creates emotional and even spiritual problems. Disconnecting from your own needs and limitations makes you miserable and destroys your inner sense of worth and purpose. Unaddressed issues around shame, self-worth, and fear will go along controlling and jeopardizing your life until you work through them consciously. It doesn't even work. Is all this drama and heartbreak even worth it? No. The people we try to help, appease, impress, or fix never seem to rush back at us with praise and appreciation anyway, and their lives don't miraculously get better if we take away from ourselves to give to them. It's tempting to think that somehow all of this sacrifice and self-negation 
is a grand and noble price to pay. But this is an illusion. The best and healthiest relationships are between people who love one another and also love themselves. Takeaways Saying no is an essential skill for well-being, since without it, we cannot defend our boundaries. Saying no is a big part of having strong self-esteem and self-worth and helps us conserve our mental, emotional, financial, and even physical resources. People can find saying no difficult for a range of different reasons. Understanding what's preventing you from saying no right now is the first step to removing those roadblocks. One reason is that you believe chronically saying yes will make people like, accept, or approve of you. Another is that you're afraid that saying no will mean you miss out on something important or will lose something unless you say yes. A third is that you say yes out of a sense of compassion, empathy, and care, agreeing to demands because you sincerely want to help. A fourth reason is that you feel compelled or obliged to say yes, even though you don't genuinely want to, out of a sense of guilt or duty about what you should do. You may fail to say no for a mix of these reasons, but ultimately, each speaks to a dynamic of codependency. Codependency is an unhealthy enmeshment where one party takes too much responsibility and another too little. If we have problems with saying no, we may buy into the codependent belief that we're responsible for other people's emotions and happiness. We need to detach from these core beliefs because they damage our relationships, allow our boundaries to be violated, create resentment and conflict, and ultimately, they just don't work. In reading the previous chapter, some ideas and thoughts might have stood out to you as particularly relevant in your own life. Why do you find it difficult to say no? What is stopping you from saying no? Or, on the other hand, what compels you to say yes when you don't really want to? In this chapter, we'll be looking at how mindset matters. The way that you look at things changes what you see. Your mindset is a story you tell yourself, a filter you look at life through, and a set of core beliefs and values through which you interpret everything. From inside one mindset, saying no is a selfish, dangerous act that won't go unpunished. From inside another mindset, it's just an ordinary act of everyday self-care. If you believe that you are fundamentally worthless, you may be tempted to constantly act in ways that prove or earn your value to others. But if you value yourself and see your needs and limits as something to protect, then you're seldom pushed to blindly seek out approval from others, regardless of the cost to you. What's important here is that your attitude is everything. Two people may experience the exact same degree of pressure and obligation in life, but one will perceive it as manageable, while the other will experience it as completely crushing. It can take a long, long time to reprogram all our deep thought patterns and knee-jerk behaviors, but one core belief that you can commit to starting with is the belief that you can change and that you are a worthwhile person with both good and bad qualities and can find healthy and satisfying ways to just be you. 
Believing in your own self-worth will give you resilience and the courage to make changes. It will allow you to speak up for yourself and realize that your needs are worth being acknowledged and addressed too. Your past doesn't dictate your future, and you never have to be a victim. No matter where you are right now, you can learn and grow. Even if it doesn't seem like it, there are opportunities in the world for you if you find ways to reach out for them. We've looked at codependent mindsets and the reasons we might be unable to say no. Now, let's consider the opposite, a healthier, happier attitude where we feel calm, confident, free, and fulfilled in our lives. Core beliefs are the foundation of everything. If we can go in and change them, we can rewrite our life scripts for ourselves. Getting rid of counter-mindsets Mindsets are formed through a lifetime of prior experience and emotional milestones. A counter-mindset can be thought of as a mindset that is producing results you're not happy with and want to change. In our case, counter-mindsets are those that allow our boundaries to be violated and have us acting to undermine our own desires and limits as we prioritize those of others. We can't just switch mindsets overnight. But what we can do is become aware of the mindset we do have and gradually work to replace it with something better. The following are three powerful mindsets that go against the ones you may already have inbuilt, i.e., those attitudes and beliefs that lead you to say yes to things that are harmful for you. Let's look in detail at the inner dialogues through which these mindsets play out. Saying no doesn't make you a bad person. We encountered this idea with reason four, i.e., you feel you have to say yes because otherwise you'll be a bad person. Your inner talk might go like this. Do this or why will happen. For example, say yes or they'll think you're selfish. Agree to go or they'll never invite you again. Say you don't mind or you'll come across as rude and they'll reject you. These if-then conditional statements are a clue you have a counter-mindset working against you. The assumption is, it's 100% unacceptable that I should hurt anyone's feelings, disappoint anyone, or appear unkind. The inner narrative says, I can't bear it if someone thinks badly of me, and so, therefore, I should do whatever I can to avoid this happening. But the next time you hear yourself engaging in this self-talk, it might be so automatic that it's hard to catch it first. Pause and challenge yourself. Is it really true that people will reject you? And even if they did, is that really the end of the world? Is it your responsibility to make sure that others never experience bad emotions? Where did you get this idea from? And is it really helping you? People with healthy mindsets know that saying no doesn't make them a bad person. It just makes them a person who said no. Think of someone you love and respect. If they said to you, I'm really sorry, but I just can't make it tonight, no. Would you think they're a bad person? Probably not. Even if you were a little irritated, it doesn't mean they've done anything wrong or weren't entitled to say no. If this is a problem for you, you may need to constantly look at your self-talk to see if it's something you want to hold on to, or if you'd like to replace it with something that feels better. If you have trouble with this counter-mindset, 
you might find it helpful to literally stop now and then and tell yourself out loud, saying no doesn't make me a bad person. Better yet, tap into your value and remind yourself of your right to have boundaries and preferences. You are allowed to make your own choices. Expressing your needs or limits doesn't mean you've hurt others or have been rude or selfish. Each of us has that prerogative. A few mantras to keep in mind that can offset a dysfunctional mindset. I have value independent of other people's opinions. I trust my assessment of a situation and my own discretion. I'm not responsible for other people's emotional responses to my politely expressed boundaries. Saying no doesn't mean you don't care. Perhaps you have an inner tape that says, But I can't say no to them. I care too much. Here's something that might shift your paradigm. We can say no and care at the same time. We can demonstrate empathy and compassion and take a step back to respect our own limits and boundaries. We don't have to stress ourselves out or suffer to prove that we're nice. Caring for others is not the same as martyring ourselves. We can sometimes tell others the lie that the world wants us to be unauthentic and needs us to self-negate, to bend over backwards, to work ourselves to death serving others, but is that really true? Put yourself on the other side for a moment. You contact a colleague for help and they say, Gosh, I, I see how swamped you are right now. I'm not surprised you need extra support with this, but unfortunately... I have a load of prior commitments that I'm working through, and I have to deal with them instead right now. Now, you might feel a little disappointed, but what are you going to do? They can't help you. End of story. They care, but that doesn't mean they can magically change the reality of their circumstances just because of that care. We can always empathize, listen, and understand, even if we're unable or unwilling to literally solve all the other person's life problems for them. It's okay to ask for help, and it's okay to decline giving help. Help is nice, but it's never owed, and we should never demand it. If it helps, the next time you say no to someone and you're worried that it shows them you don't care, reframe it in your mind. You do care about your own needs and limits. Once you practice this for a while, you'll see that people most often understand and even respect your ability to defend your own resources and boundaries. It means that your yes is so much more valuable and meaningful when you give it. I can emphasize with another person's negative emotion without having to rush in and remove it for them. Caring doesn't compel me to act. I can also just listen and be present. My needs matter, too. Saying no doesn't mean you're selfish. If you identified strongly with the guilt and shame from the previous chapter, then this counter-mindset is probably running along in the background of your life. When you feel guilt around saying no, whether you say it or not, pause and look closely at your inner voice and what it's saying. Later in this book, We'll look more closely at ways to reprogram old and unhelpful beliefs about ourselves, but for now, simply see if you can catch them in action. You might find yourself saying things like, Taking care of myself is self-indulgent, selfish, haughty, narcissistic, 
mean, egotistical, or any horrible word of your choice. My needs come second to other people's. My personal well-being is not as important as being perceived as likable and useful. Other people need help and compassion, but I can do without it, and don't really deserve it anyway. If I say no, I have to follow with an apology and a long list of ways I'll make amends to atone for not saying yes like I should. Sometimes we can uncover these harmful unconscious beliefs by turning things around and asking if we would say or think the same about a loved one or friend. If you notice that you seem to have a double standard, for example, others are allowed to say no, I guess, but when I do it, I feel like an awful person, then it's time to ask whether your mindset is actually a counter-mindset working against you. Change Strategies for Counter-Mindsets Knowing what we need to change and why comes before we figure out how to change. Here, we're going to consider some proven, targeted strategies you can use in your own life to address the specific counter-mindsets we've explored in the previous section. Saying no makes you a bad person. Saying no means you don't care. Saying no means you're selfish. Each of the above beliefs is a roadblock that gets in the way of saying no and establishing healthy boundaries for our own well-being. There are countless ways to overcome mindsets more generally, but we'll focus on strategies that specifically address these common mental models, attitudes, and core beliefs. Anytime we want to change a mindset, however, no matter what it is, we need to remind ourselves of a few necessary ingredients. We can change no matter what our past looks like. To change, we need to accept that our current thinking is no longer working and that we have to risk trying something new. With small but consistent conscious changes, we can reach our goals and create a healthy, happy life. With that in mind, let's take a deep dive in. Rewriting the script that saying no makes you a bad person. Picture Annabelle, who's called a big softy by her family, and who seems completely incapable of saying no to anyone who asks for a little help, or a lot of help. Annabelle's adult children regularly drain her savings when they need bailing out of the latest life emergency. She gives them everything, washes their laundry, sends them home with food and gifts. Annabelle has many friends who seem to forget their wallets at home when the bill comes, and Annabelle pays. In fact, at the charities that Annabelle works at, there are at least four. The organizers know to go to her first when money is needed. Annabelle never says no. The story that she likes to tell herself with these actions is that she is ultra-generous, kind beyond reproach, even saintly. The problem? Annabelle doesn't have the money to spend. Her loose financial boundaries mean she frequently fails to budget for her own needs, finds herself unable to pay for essentials, and then is so mortified she can't bear to ask for help. Secretly, Annabelle loves people treating her like Santa Claus, but even more secretly, she actually resents the demands. People never seem to be as grateful as she hopes, and in fact, 
may seem a little too comfortable with her generosity, forgetting to say thank you at all, or just assuming she'll give without second thought. What's the problem here? The issue is not that Annabelle is too nice. She tells herself and others that this is the problem, but the problem is the opposite. Annabelle doesn't believe she is nice enough. In other words, it's because she thinks so little of herself that she believes she needs to give so much in order for people to think she is good. The mindset that saying no makes you a bad person is actually the mindset that says, I am only a good person when I do what others want. Look closely at this attitude, and you will see someone who feels worthless until someone else derives worth from them. In other words, behind this mindset is one thing only, low self-esteem. The way to dig up the deep roots of this mindset is to start with self-worth. If you're like Annabelle, a great path is to develop a strong and healthy self-concept. Self-love, if you will, that does not depend on pleasing, helping, or focusing on other people. In other words, the goal is to say no without it diminishing your sense of worth as a human being. Mindsets are made out of beliefs, assumptions, narratives, i.e., thoughts. But below the thoughts, driving them like an engine, are emotions. The emotions behind this mindset are low ones, worry, blame discouragement, anger, revenge, hatred, jealousy, insecurity and doubt, despair, powerlessness, grief, and, at the very far end, deep feelings of self-hate and worthlessness. Doesn't seem so saintly now, does it? We can change our mindset by changing the emotions that fuel it. The less reactive we are, the more conscious and the more mindful we are of how we're feeling the more control we have over changing how we feel. Imagine your emotions as a ladder with the lowest at the bottom and things like joy, peace, love, and enthusiasm at the top. You can't leap from the pit of despair to ultimate bliss in one step. You need to climb one rung at a time. One technique to doing this can be called emotional calibration. If you're feeling worthless and anxious i.e., your core belief is, I'm a bad person, then you're susceptible to being manipulated or having your boundaries violated by other people's demands. I'd better say yes to them, because that means I'll be a good person, and then I'll feel better. This technique focuses on fine-tuning our internal emotions first, so that when we go out into the world and engage with others, our boundaries are intact, and we emit a healthier, happier attitude. Change how you feel and you change how you think. Change how you think and you change how you act. Here's a simple step-by-step -step process to show you how to emotionally calibrate, i.e., move from a low rung on the ladder to a higher one. Pause to become mindful. Identify your emotion. Take a small step in the right direction. Make decisions from healthy emotions, not unhealthy ones. So, let's say Annabelle has been asked, yet again, by her adult children to cough up for something she can't actually afford. Knowing she wants to break this mindset, the first thing she does is pause and become mindful. First, she tells her children she'll think about it, 
and retreats a little to go inside herself and check with how she feels. Being mindful of her body, heart, and mind, she identifies the emotion. She notices tension all through her shoulders and jaw. She notices she feels panicked and rushed and has a nagging sense of obligation. Beneath this, she notices something else, a thought that says, Give them everything they want or you'll be a bad mother. She sits with this feeling and notices that, yes, she often does feel like a bad mother, and there's a lot of shame in that. Without clinging or resisting, she acknowledges this feeling of shame. Next, she decides she wants to feel better and take a step up the ladder. She doesn't need to turn into a picture of perfect happiness in five minutes. She only needs to take a step in the right direction. There are a few ways to do this. One way is to find something to be grateful for. Sounds cheesy, but gratitude has an incredible way of raising your vibration and countering feelings of worthlessness or dissatisfaction. Annabelle could write out a list of things she's grateful for, including things she likes about herself. This counters the shame a little. She writes, I'm grateful that both my children are doing well at college, and notices that reminding herself of this counteracts the idea that she's an awful mother who has failed her kids. When doing this yourself, imagine climbing slowly up the ladder. Follow what feels good. Another way to inch up the emotional ladder is to have a little fun. Annabelle could distract herself with a favorite comedy film or do something lighthearted with a friend. When she returns to the issue of her children, she might be surprised to see how many rungs up the ladder she's moved and how she now feels far less responsible for them. Nobody can tell you what things will move you up the ladder. That's for you to decide, but take a small step, and if it feels better, keep going. Indulge in a little self-care. Remember a compliment someone has told you. Take a break. Pick up an old interest or speak to someone who makes you feel good. Now, the final step can be attempted. Make a decision from a healthy state of mind. After Annabelle takes some time to think about it, she not only considers the rational aspects of her children's request, but she has time to calibrate emotionally. When she's ready to speak to them again, she's no longer speaking to them from that sense of shame, I have to say yes to be a good person, but from a healthier sense of self-worth. I'm already a good person. She tells her children that, no, she can't afford to pay this time, and she thinks it will be better for them to take financial responsibility for their own mistakes. She can do this with love, but firmness. You can do the same by pausing, identifying your emotions, making small improvements in that emotion, try journaling, mantras, self-care, distraction, or whatever works for you, and then responding to the request from higher up on the ladder. As a general rule, give yourself the gift of delaying important decisions until you can be sure you're making them from a good place, emotionally speaking. Rewriting the script that saying no means you don't care. Annabelle's yes came from shame and feeling like a bad person. But Mike says yes in a different way. He really does care about people and has always seen himself as a kind, empathetic, and considerate human being. 
while Annabelle's inability to say no manifested in the form of non-existent financial boundaries. Mike's inability shows itself as overly porous emotional boundaries. Mike is a bleeding heart who feels things deeply. He cares about the plight of the disadvantaged and the oppressed. He is a passionate political activist who cannot hear about the pain of someone else without feeling a little of it himself. Mike is frequently upset about a wide range of injustices and fights the good fight against bigotry, ignorance, inequality, environmental calamity, political corruption, human rights violations, you name it. You can guess the problem. Mike's nerves are absolutely frazzled. He is an insomniac with a migraine problem. He's depressed and anxious and carries the weight of the world on his shoulders, feeling apathetic and sad most days. Mike is overwhelmed and spiritually exhausted, touched to the core by the unacceptable things he's witnessed in his volunteer work. It affects his relationships. People find him too intense and a bit of a downer. And his health. He's on antidepressants and has a nasty drinking habit to self-medicate. It might not look like it at first, but Mike's problem is his inability to say no. He can't say no to the endless depressing stories on his news feed and keeps scrolling. He can't say, no, that's enough demoralizing news for today. I'm going for a walk. While Annabelle's mindset was primarily driven by an emotion, Mike's mindset is underpinned by a set of thoughts and beliefs which go like this. If there's a problem, I have to fix it. If I care, I should do something about it. Suffering is unacceptable, and I can help. I can't stop until the problem is solved. You can see why Mike is burnt out. There is never an end to the suffering in the world. No matter how much you do, there's always more to be done. Always another injustice. Always another problem. It might sound silly if he said it aloud, but Mike probably does think unconsciously, it's my job to save the world, and I can't rest until I do. Mike believes that if you care, you need to act. If you don't act, it means you don't care. This isn't true. Mike is principled and compassionate, but his core beliefs are not helping him because the result is that his well-being suffers. Just like Annabelle can work to gently adjust her emotional state, Mike can work to rewrite the maladaptive beliefs and thoughts that are keeping him miserable. He can follow this process, which is quite similar to Annabelle's. Pause and become mindful. Identify the underlying thought or belief as well as its effect. Gently challenge this thought and replace it with something healthier. Make decisions from healthy core beliefs, not unhealthy ones. Let's see how this could play out. Let's say a friend of Mike's recommends a documentary film for Mike to watch, some grisly, heartbreaking piece about child labor in India that won some important awards. Not a fun, relaxing night in, that's for sure. Knowing that he needs to change his mindset, Mike's first step is to notice that there is a new demand on his attention and energy. Granted, his friend is not literally asking or forcing him to do this, but sometimes our most pressing and irresistible demands come from things as innocuous as smartphone notifications. Mike pauses and becomes mindful. 
His friend has sent him a link to watch the film, but Mike thanks him and sets it aside. Should he watch it? He turns within to examine what he's thinking and feeling. He observes his inner mental chatter to see what mindset or program is running automatically in there. This film looks interesting, and it's in my field of expertise, he thinks. Listening closer to the voice telling him to watch it, though, he thinks, it's your duty to educate yourself on important issues. You must watch it. It's stressful, and will freak you out, and make you feel bad, but tough. If you don't watch it, you're just like those people who turn a blind eye to the suffering of others. Here, Mike digs in to identify the underlying belief and discovers it's this. If I don't help, it means I don't care. Next, he gently challenges this. Is it really true? There are a lot of assumptions here. Is it the case that watching a documentary actually helps anyone? Is it true that if Mike is concerned, he needs to put the full force of his energy and awareness onto this concern, even at his own expense? Is it really true that it's Mike's problem to solve? Does Mike serve anyone by being stressed out and unhappy? Is watching this documentary really pivotal to the fate of the world at large? These are difficult questions. Mike can write down some more moderate, healthier ideas to replace them. He knows they're healthier and more moderate because they don't make him feel as bad and result in behavior that he prefers, for example, not drinking so much. Instead of, if I don't help, it means I don't care, he can write down, I care, but I don't have to single-handedly solve this problem myself. There's a limit to how much focus and energy I can give. I can show I care in smaller, more manageable ways. Now, once Mike has spent some time ironing out his core beliefs, he can use them to inform his actions, rather than saying yes to every additional demand without thinking. He can look at the documentary and tell himself, You know what? Of course this is an important issue, and I care deeply about these people. That doesn't mean I have to devote all my free time to researching it, though. Maybe I'll watch it another time. But this evening, I'm going to watch something lighthearted. Just because there are serious issues going on in the world, it doesn't mean I'm not allowed to be happy myself. So, Anchorman 2 it is. Rewriting the script that says that saying no means you're selfish. For our third counter mindset, we'll look at Alex, who is a people-pleaser extraordinaire. Like many people raised in a culture that values women who are self-sacrificing, nurturing, and useful above all else. Alex has deep programming that tells her that other people's needs should preferably come before her own. Alex bought an audiobook about self-love once, but found it really embarrassing and cringy. The author seemed to her to be so haughty and selfish. Dedicate an entire evening to doing whatever you wanted to Alex? That just sounds like diva behavior. In Alex's mind, saying no makes you difficult. She values harmony, cooperation, and a little give and take amongst equals. Sounds good, but the trouble is that for Alex, this attitude so often seems to lead to more give from her than take. At work, 
Alex is determined not to come across as unreasonable or negative. She wants to be seen as a team player and not a brat who can't work with people and get along. What does she do? She says yes to everything. Always cheerful and accommodating, Alex mistakenly thinks this will win her a reputation for being a can-do, competent employee. Big surprise, it doesn't. Instead, Alex seems to command less respect as time goes on. More work is dumped on her lap with less thanks. She finds herself bending over backward to fit in someone's request. When she apologizes that she can't bend over any further, the other person always seems to say, Okay, fine, that'll do, I guess. Alex doesn't have deep self-worth issues like Annabelle or some faulty core beliefs like Mike. But what she does have is a bad habit, a habit of letting others walk all over her. Alex is just used to apologizing, saying yes automatically, and agreeing to more than she should. But the great thing about bad habits is they can be changed. Habits are formed one tiny action at a time, and they're broken that way too. Small, incremental changes can and do add up, and little adjustments in one area can be like the butterfly flapping its wings and causing a hurricane on the other side of the world. Here's how Alex can break her yes addiction and build a better habit. Pause and become mindful. Identify the bad habit. Make small goals to replace or eradicate this habit. Make the right decisions automatic rather than the wrong ones. Alex dedicates every morning before work and every evening after work to sit with her journal to become more mindful of her habits and how they're affecting her. In here, she reflects on her thoughts and feelings, clarifies her values, and makes bigger goals for herself. I want to have healthier work boundaries. In her journal, she identifies her daily habits, i.e., agreeing to do work she doesn't have time for, failing to speak up, and so on. In her journal, she also notes the effects this has on her and reminds herself that she would be happier with more respect, more free time, and more assertiveness. Now, she makes small goals to get there. It's about baby steps. In her journal, she breaks down her big goal into many smaller milestones, making sure they are smart goals, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time-limited. So, she might decide, on a mini-goal one week, I will not agree to write up minutes for the meeting if asked on Monday, and will calmly say no without giving excuses. Alex writes some mantras and motivational quotes in the front of her journal, and practices some visualizations, seeing herself speaking clearly and confidently. She practices in the mirror and writes herself a script. On Monday, she does it. She says no, but finds herself fumbling a little and makes excuses and apologizes. She comes back to her journal, getting better, but not there just yet. She sets another goal for next week and carries on. She keeps track of her improvement bit by bit, day by day. She ramps up the goals in time, congratulating herself for small tasks accomplished, then moving on to the next. She's doing what Annabelle did, in a way, by climbing the ladder one step at a time. Now, 
Whether your mindset change focuses on emotions, like Annabelle, or thoughts, like Mike, or habits, like Alex, the general process for making changes is similar. Become more mindful, make small and incremental changes in the right direction, then make decisions from your new mindset. In reality, your mindset may be a mix of all three of these. It's up to you to fashion an approach that will work best. If we are mindful first, we can consciously explore alternatives and make changes, and then try something new. From there, we're doing the hard work of evolving and can carry on adjusting as we go. Takeaways Mindset is everything. Our attitude and worldview is like a filter through which we see reality. If we change our mindset, we change how we feel and how we act. A counter-mindset is a learned, habitual way of thinking that is not serving our goals. A counter-mindset may be behind our inability to say no and can play out in emotional, cognitive, or behavioral ways. To change any unhelpful mindset, we can follow a general procedure, pause and become mindful of what we're doing, identify the emotions and thoughts we're having, then take small, incremental steps in a different direction toward the alternative mindset we want to cultivate instead. From there, we can make decisions and act from an empowered, healthy position instead, i.e., say no. One common counter-mindset is the idea that saying no makes you a bad person. We can counter this attitude by using the technique of emotional calibration. We do this by gently raising our emotional vibration by practicing gratitude, journaling, mantras, or even distractions. Another counter-mindset is the belief that saying no means you don't care. The faulty core belief is that caring compels you to act, and that if you have compassion, you cannot say no or put up a boundary. We can change this thought by writing down more balanced alternative thoughts and reverting to them until they become habitual. A third counter-mindset tells us that saying no means we're selfish. We can challenge this by working on the level of habit and making small incremental goals that we work consciously toward changing bit by bit. This has been How to Say No. Stand your ground, assert yourself, and make yourself be seen without guilt or awkwardness. Written by Patrick King, narrated by Russell Newton. Copyright 2021 by Patrick King. Production copyright by Patrick King.